You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Got the car? You bet. Brand new burnt umber Sierra. You want your own wife kidnapped. Her dad, he's real well off. So why don't you just ask him for the money? <laughs> See, these are personal matters. Personal matters? I'm... Wait, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's my wife. We gotta talk. It's something hard, geez. It's terrible. Oh, I got the state looking for a Sierra with a tag starting DLR. Sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lil. I think that vehicle there probably had dealer plates. Jeez. DLR? No, they said no cops. Here's the second one. So we got a trooper pull someone over. This a new car then, sir? Oh, it certainly is, officer. Still got that smell. There's a high-speed pursuit. We got a shooting. And then this execution-type deal. Million dollars, a lot of damn money. They got my daughter. Bye, hon. Brought you some lunch, Margie. What are those, night crawlers? Oh, yeah, look pretty good. How's Jean? Who's Jean? My wife. <laughs> well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. You were having sex with a little fella then. Yeah. Mr. Lundegaard, mind if I sit down? Trying quite a load here. Where's Jerry? Got your damn money. Now where's my daughter? What a good shit. We don't want the entire 80,000. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here. You have no call to get snippled with me. I'm just doing my job here. <gasps> what do you fellas got yourself mixed up in? Police! So, is there anything else you can tell me about him? He wasn't circumcised. Oh, yeah? Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. My name is Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Todd Melby. He is the author of a recent book, A Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere, The Untold Story of the Making of Fargo. It is a terrific book. I thought that I knew a lot about Fargo, but I only scratched the surface, and Mr. Melby has done a fantastic job of digging in deep, talking to a lot of folks that were behind the production, and just put together a riveting book about the making of Fargo. I highly recommend it, and you can find out more over at his website, Todd Melby, that's M-E-L-B-Y dot com, and I will also have links over on the website, projectionboothpodcast.com. Definitely check it out, and I hope you enjoy the interview. I want to know more about you, Todd Melby. Tell me your story. How did we come to this place in your life? I'm a reporter. I'm a journalist. And I'm a podcaster. And so I'm just always, or so it seems, always looking for new subjects to tackle. And I was covering the oil boom in Western North Dakota about five, six years ago for a a public media project, doing lots of radio. 
and a short film about the oil boom and bust in North Dakota. And it was super, super intense. And that was as I was driving from Williston, North Dakota to Minneapolis across the Great Prairie, I thought, man, I just need something a little lighter that I really like. Are there any movie anniversaries coming up that I could do a, you know, a radio documentary on? And it occurred to me that the 20th anniversary of the movie Fargo was coming up. So I thought, well, I could write some grants, try to do that. And I did. And my wife and I produced a radio doc about Fargo for Fargo's 20th anniversary. Interviewed William H. Macy, the dialect coach, Elizabeth Himmelstein, and a bunch of other actors. And then after that was done, I thought, I've never written a book before. Let's try that. Fargo isn't the movie of the Coen brothers that jumps out at me because I there's a lot of others that I like even more than that one. But I suppose it's the most user-friendly of all of their films. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, I interviewed the actor John Carroll Lynch, who played Norm Gunderson in the movie. And he said that, you know, Fargo really has a beating heart. And so there's, there's that love story between, you know, his character and Francis McDormand's character. And, you know, their relationship is kind of the, the secure, uh, happy relationship in the movie, right? We know nothing bad is going to happen when we see those two people on the screen. That's pretty rare in a Joel and Ethan Cohn movie. Other than needing a project to work on, what drew you to Fargo? I really, really like the Cohn brothers. Um, I like lots of other directors, too. I'm from Western North Dakota. I was born there. I went to high school there. Uh, I currently live in Minneapolis. And so this whole milieu of, of Minnesota and North Dakota is very much a part of my life. I thought it was a, a project that I could pitch successfully to a publisher, a Minnesota-based publisher. And I knew people around here would be interested in it. And I knew people around the country and around the world are likely going to be interested in it if they like the Coen Brothers movies or movie making. I just really wanted to find out more about how movies were made beyond the acting and beyond the directing and kind of, you know, get into those, those often overlooked but important details like sound design, uh, set decoration, special effects, uh, the stunt people. So I ended up talking to lots of those kind of people. And I think in the book, I tried to weave their insights into the insights from, from the actors uh, as well. How many years did it take you to put all of this together? The radio documentary, which is called We Don't Talk Like That, Fargo in the Midwest Psyche, <laughs> because when you talk to people from northern Minnesota, northern North Dakota, that's what they say. They said, we don't talk like that. I mean, they, they really do say that a lot. And if you like look in the Twitter comments after FX airs an episode of Fargo, um, there's lots of we don't talk like that comments. It took about a year to do the radio documentary. And then once I decided to do the book, the research and the writing took about two and a half years. And you talked about the weaving together of all those different aspects. And that's one of the things that I really appreciated is that it's just, it's such a piece as far as talking about the set decoration and that look that the Coens were going for. And almost in the next paragraph, you talk about the cinematography. And again, we're not going to move the camera as much, and we're just going to set these shots to be a lot more static. You really take all of those disparate pieces and, and push them together into one very, very cohesive story. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly what I was what I was trying to do was kind of explain and uncover all the creative decisions that that Joel and Ethan Cohn made. Like for example, when they say, as you just referenced, the whole idea about the camera not moving or moving very little, that all started with the idea of them telling us that this is a true story. 
And so once they set up that lie, that it is a true story, but they want us to believe it, of course, then we as a viewer start to watch the movie in a different way. Instead of moving the camera in, in lots of exciting ways that they are very much used to in their movies previous to this, the movie, they first started out with the idea of like not moving the camera at all. And then one of them said, well, we realized that was a pretty stupid idea. So we decided, <laughs> we decided to move the camera just a little bit. So it was more of, much more observational. In the book, Roger Deakins is quoted as saying that it's much more observational. And you can see that like in some of the establishing shots or medium shots uh, that they use, the camera is just there with the characters. When it comes to somebody like a, a, a Deakins or, or the Coen brothers, did you have an opportunity to talk to them? Those three people, no. I talked to as many people as I could. With Roger Deakins, for example, I kept emailing, emailing, emailing. And they're like, he's not available. He's not available. Then I read that 1917 was coming out. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> That's why he's not available. He's a little busy. By the way, have you heard uh, the Team Deacons podcast? It comes out twice a week and it's like super deep into movie making. Roger Deakins is busy. Joel and Ethan Cohn said no. Francis McDormand said no. Uh, Buscemi and Stormare said no. But pretty much everybody else said yes. And then as far as the, the crew goes, I talked to the uh, Skip Livesey, who does sound, the set decorator. The you know, and a whole bunch of other folks. The quotes from the dialect coach are some of the most insightful for me. I absolutely love how they went around capturing that. I mean, especially you're talking about how we don't talk like that, but it sounds like that a lot of this is based on truth. I think so. There are people still today in 2021, you know, when I go to the doctor's office or I'm just out and about here in Minneapolis, you'll occasionally meet a person who has a very close to pure or pure Minnesota accent, like in the movie. And I think this was even more so back in the mid-1990s, and especially back in small towns in the mid-1990s, where people or Minnesotans didn't you know, interact much with the rest of the world. And you had this, this accent that with all the long vowel sounds. So there's a guy named William Preston Robertson, or Bill, who went to high school with Ethan Cohn and Bill was working as a reporter here. And Ethan goes, well, you know, if we send you a tape recorder, could you go around and just record Minnesotans? Cause we're going to do a movie based in Minnesota and we want to capture that sound. And so they asked Bill to do it. Bill did it. And he just, you know, as he went around doing his reporter thing, he taped people's voices and he asked them very specific questions. And so one of the people's voices they got was um, a woman who worked for Bill's wife and, and Bill's wife is a, a doctor. And that, that person just had this like quintessential, yeah, you know, kind of heavy accent. And then they shared those tapes with Elizabeth Himmelstein, who then shared them with the actors. And plus, when Joel and Ethan were writing it, they wrote it in the dialect. Many of the words are written in the accent. And, you know, Himmelstein told me that, that the Cones presented her with a, quote, musical score, not just a script. The thing I like about the Cohen so much, too, is that they will make period films, but they'll make them in odd periods. Because this was out in 96, but it's from, what, early 80s-ish? 87 is you know where they said it. The other thing about them, in addition to that time specificity, is, is the play specificity. Obviously, Fargo... You know, they couldn't put that in, in Pittsburgh, but, you know, they couldn't put Miller's Crossing anyplace other than New Orleans or uh, Blood Simple anyplace other than West Texas. I mean, for them, being specific up about place and about accent and time, those are all ways to, you know, add specificity to, to the movie. You know, you talked a little bit about this is based on a true story. 
that lie that kind of helps sell the film and that they continued to tell that it was based on a true story for a while, if memory serves. But I'd like that you go into some of the possible true stories that might have played into it. Absolutely. There were a couple of cases in Minnesota. One was a a husband in St. Paul, Minnesota, who hired a guy to kill his wife, but he wanted the guy to make it look like a an accident. And of course, that guy hired another guy, even though that guy wasn't vouched for. <laughs> you, you can tell I'm trying to you know, draw the similarities to Fargo. That happened when uh, the Cones were very young. And of course, the guy that the guy hired botched it and the murder was super obvious and the husband was convicted. And then there was a, a kidnapping when the, the Cone brothers were teenagers. And this was another Minneapolis-St. Paul case. Uh, there was a woman who was a rich woman who was taken out of her backyard and tied up to a pine tree in a Minnesota state park up north, up by uh, Duluth there. And that was a successful kidnapping in that the kidnappers actually got the money and, and no one was convicted. They actually got away with it. And in this case, thankfully, the, the woman wasn't killed. She was returned safely. And then the third case that I mentioned uh, in that chapter was uh, a Connecticut case of a Eastern Airlines pilot in the 1980s who murdered his wife and then chopped up her body in a wood chipper. And he almost got away with it. Um, he, but at trial, the prosecution you know, pointed out the horrors of the wood chipper. It was a super famous case because it was an Eastern Airlines pilot. His wife was a stewardess. And there was a wood chipper involved. So like all the headlines of the day had the words pilot and wood chipper in them. So the prosecution actually had a, had a, had a videotape that they played to the jury that, that showed the powerful effects of a wood chipper by showing, well, here, look, here's what it would do to a pig. And it was just horrific, obviously. And I'm convinced that, you know, the Coens read that and they thought, oh, yeah, we need to put a wood chipper in a movie. That is horrific. But the wood chipper has become, you know, lore. It's become like. Dorothy's gold sli- or Dorothy's ruby slippers. I mean, it is it is the the object from this movie that that people talk about. When I think of the movie, I think of that image of Stormare standing by the wood chipper with Buscemi's leg hanging out of it. One thing your your readers will will learn, or readers will learn in general, is like where is the wood chipper today? And the answer to that question is that it's a uh, it's in a grain silo just outside of Fargo, North Dakota. You can go there and visit it and pose by it and. You know, you can put your baby in the chipper. <laughs> you can put your dog in the chipper and just, you know, take a selfie. Do you have a lot of selfies with that chipper? I have a couple. I have a couple. Yeah. And I have, you know, my son is with the chipper. My sister's with the chipper. The, the, the great thing is they there are little old ladies who work there at the grain silo. Um, it's sponsored by the Fargo-Moorhead Visitors and Convention Bureau because you need more reasons to go to Fargo, North Dakota. And so, like, if you don't if you don't have your bomber hat with you, like the kind that Stormare was wearing in the movie, like they have some there, then they'll just lend them to you so you can put it on for your picture. Yeah, very nice. And you know, and Fargo, North Dakota, is a pretty darn nice town too. You're talking about driving across from North Dakota into Minnesota. That idea of those open plains and the white and just all of that. I mean, just these amazing striking images. Did you feel like you were in the movie when you were doing that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the thing, and I, I kind of, I, I mentioned this in the book too, is like how often there are these major snowstorms and blizzards here in the Midwest. I mean, there was the children's blizzard of 1888 where dozens of children died 
Like I lived through the Halloween blizzard of 1991. This is, I was taking my kids trick-or-treating in 1991 and it actually started to snow and we ended up getting 20 some inches of snow in three days. I mean, people still talk about the Halloween blizzard of 91. And then there was like the storm of the century and the armistice day blizzard. Just about anybody who's driven across those plains has gotten stuck in a blizzard where they had to like pull over and spend the night at a motel. It's just part of life, you know, and for the cones to be here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, in 1995, during January, February, and March, and not have any snow. I mean, that was a huge problem for them and super unexpected. You know, so they had to eventually go north uh, to Grand Forks, North Dakota, to rent rooms at the Holiday Inn in Grand Forks and go even further north near the Canadian border to film, you know, many of those outdoor scenes. Is Fargo seen as something to be proud of in Fargo, the movie that is? Yes, Fargo, North Dakota has completely embraced it. There's a statue of Francis McDormand as Marge Gunderson, and it's carved out of wood. The movie distributor gave it to the Fargo Theater when either the VHS or the DVD came out. There's the wood chipper that's at the grain silo. I interviewed the guy for the radio documentary, the guy who ran the, the tourist department. And, you know, it was his job to try to bring conventions to the city. And of course, most people are afraid they're going to fall off the end of the earth if they get too far away from Minneapolis-St. Paul. So <laughs> so he was happy that anybody was even just talking about the city. One of the things that I really appreciated that you did in the book is that you really went into the whole Mike Yanagita scene, because that scene has troubled me since I first saw the film. And I was so glad that you really dive into that. It's a very important scene. And I really got to know the actor who, who played Mike Yanagita. His name is Stephen Park. He wasn't the only one who I talked to about it. I mean, pretty much everybody who I interviewed um, about the movie, other actors especially, would say, yeah, that guy who played the Asian guy, he was really, really good. And also, why is that scene in the movie? As a couple of people in the book point out that uh, the reason the, that scene is in the movie, I think it's two or three reasons. But one of the reasons is it really does show Marge. Marge thinks that Mike is telling the truth, you know, that Mike, Mike's wife really did die of cancer, et cetera, et cetera. But then she later finds out from her friend that Mike, Mike isn't doing well. He completely stalked um, his former classmate and he was never married and he doesn't have a job and he's living at home with his mom. And then once Marge figures that out, like once that realization of, of uh, Mike's duplicity kind of hits her, then she goes back and, interviews Jerry Lundegaard a second time. So it really just shows Marge that, you know, people lie. Yeah, there was always that, like you said, why is this in there? So your explanation as far as her not catching everything the first time around, I think was very, very key. So I'm 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 very grateful to you for writing about that. I also think there's there's other reasons too. I think the Coens wanted to have more scenes in to kind of like explore Marge more fully as a, as a character. There was supposed to be a scene in there where she meets a, a female homicide detective who's working for the Minneapolis police. And they were supposed to have a moment in an office where they talked about kids and pregnancy. And there are some you know plot points revealed to kind of move the, the movie forward. And they ended up just, you know, axing that scene because it really was kind of, you know, almost a paint by numbers kind of thing. Whereas, whereas this, the scene with Stephen Park as Mike Yanagita is just so much richer. I mean, he's just, he's just so uh, depressed and, uh, and sort of hungry for human 
human connection sort of he's just so sad and and hearing park describe his approach to that character was just terrific yeah the acting in the film does not get much better down to the smallest character and all of the attention to detail when it comes to that those characters how they are formed and especially how they're dressed you talking about the outfits of the um the two prostitutes it's like oh yeah i can completely picture the hair the scrunchie the the sweater all of that the little bee necklace on the one it's just yeah it's perfect that is super important and and I hadn't really noticed the scrunchie or like the the denim skirt or even the bee on the necklace, but I was interviewing the actress uh, who played Hooker Number One. Her name was Larissa Cokerno, and she was just talking about it about that in detail. I'm like, okay, wait, I have to pause it. And so as, as I was talking to her, I was pausing it and and beginning to pay more attention. And I also love the story of Hooker Number One and Hooker Number Two coming in to film that scene at a strip club in Wisconsin called the Loch Ness. And they were all made up, like their hair was all poofy. They had lots of lots of makeup on. And Joel and Ethan are like, "No, no, no, no! This isn't this isn't the night of. This is the morning after." <laughs> and then they go back to makeup, and you know they take all the makeup off and push down their hair. You mentioned some scenes that were originally written for the movie, but didn't end up being in there. I have to tell you, I was green with envy as you were talking about going to like the UCLA library and being able to read the scripts and all this. I was like, Oh man, cause that is what I love to do is to see that transition from those early drafts to the shooting draft to the final film. That was huge. It was a, a big, a big uh, reveal for me. Yeah. So those, um, like anybody who's in Los Angeles who wants to go to the uh, the Writers Guild of America Library or the Library at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences can do so. You can read lots and lots of scripts there, but you can only read them in the library. You can't take pictures of them. You can't make copies of them. And those are usually, or at least for Fargo, they were the, the casting script and the shooting script. But as you mentioned, I found another script, like an earlier version that was undated, that was at a different library. And they allowed me to make copies of it. So I like I mailed the money and they mailed me the script. <laughs> and from there I could see like this, this super, not a totally rough version. I mean, like it was all complete, but there were major scenes missing. Like the Mike Yanagita scene wasn't in that early undated script. And neither was the Mr. Mora scene. That's the one where the guy has the big parka on. He's the bartender and he's uh, shoveling his driveway with a broom. As the cones went on, Marge became a, a more full character and also, the Cones did a great job of adding in more Minnesota to sort of give it more of a sense of place. If you're talking about like scenes that have nothing to do with plot development, I mean, the guy with the parka in the driveway, you know, sweeping his sweeping his driveway, you know, who talks about the funny looking guy who comes in to the bar saying, "I'm going crazy up there at the lake." I mean, that one doesn't advance anything, <laughs> but it's but it's hilarious. It's just a terrific scene. Yeah. Bane Bilkey, who's the actor who played that role, he's just retired and he's a he was a theater uh, actor and director here in Minneapolis. But he's from War Road, Minnesota, which is a short, short drive from the Canadian border. And they're crazy about hockey in War Road. Like it's cold. 
many more months a year than in Minneapolis, as far as like being like a hockey hotbed. Like there's several former Olympians from, from War Road. So Bain said he was very, um, sort of very suspicious about using, having a broom in his hand. Like he said, no self-respecting Minnesotan would be out in their driveway with a broom. We'd always have a shovel. And he was also very protective of Minnesota. He said when he saw the movie and he saw the wood chipper, he thought, well, you know, the movie ought to take place in Wisconsin, you know, because they have Ed Gein and all those serial killers over there. What were some of the most surprising things you found when you were doing your research? I was surprised by some of the super small or super detailed things that the Cones would say to actors. Like there's a guy named uh, J. Todd Anderson, who is their storyboard artist. And uh, J. Todd in addition to being the storyboard artist for, for Fargo, he also plays the gawker. He's the guy in the red coat who sees Steve Buscemi pull off the, uh, the trooper off the side of the road. That scene went fine, J. Todd said, but then the scene where he has to get out of the car, and run away from the car and get shot in the back by Storm Air. Like if I were a director, and this is why I'm not a director probably, <laughs> but if I were a director, I'd be like, yeah, all you have to do is get out and, and run and then you know pretend to get shot. But they were they were actually giving him character advice because he's leaving his his girlfriend behind in the car. You know, Joel was saying things like, uh, like, Jay Todd, you're a coward. You love your girlfriend, but you're a fucking coward, Jay Todd. <laughs> and he's sort of like, yeah, Jay Todd, you're a good guy, but you're a coward. So, I mean, that that was really funny to me. I was so glad that you went into Peter Stromer's background because I love that guy. And I think Fargo was the first time it really clicked that I really noticed him. He's got such a, a like a Timothy Carey look to him. And I thought for sure that they cast him because of that. But just to hear that he already had run-ins with the Coen brothers kind of beforehand was, was fascinating. I was so glad to read that. Yeah, I was really surprised too. That was that was fantastic. Uh, he's he's Swedish. He was with the uh, the Swedish National Theater. He acted with Ingmar Bergman uh, when Bergman was doing plays. Uh, Bergman did a version of Hamlet, and after you know touring Sweden or maybe even Europe, it it came to New York City, and so Ethan saw Peter Stormare in this production of Hamlet at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and so that's the first time that Ethan Cohn had seen him. They wanted uh, Stormare to be in Miller's Crossing, but he couldn't get out of a, a contract with that he had with uh, the theater company in Sweden. But then later, he got cast in a play with Francis McDormand. And both Joel and Ethan saw that play in New York City. And it was called The Swan by Elizabeth Egloff, I believe. And he played a guy with, with blonde hair who was kind of half man, half swan, and was mostly mute. So I'm sure it maybe clicked in their heads that like, we needed a tall guy with, you know, who is, he'll be mostly mute for this role of a super killer. Of course, they had used Buscemi before and they used him so well. I love Chet and Mink and all, all of the characters <laughs> that he's ever played for them. But when he came to this role, it was just such a time for him to shine. It was. It was, it was great. Yeah. They thought he would make a really, really good blabbermouth. They, they, they know that Buscemi in real life isn't a blabbermouth, but there's something about him as an actor that they thought would make a really good blabbermouth. And so they, they paired, you know, quiet guy with blabbermouth guy, uh, which is something they've, they've done before and since. And they just make this great combination. I mean, would it kill you to say something? 
they're like freaking cartoon characters. I love it. It's like the little yippy dog and the big, you know, muscle dog that just kind of walks behind it or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And being somebody who talks too much, I would definitely be the blabbermouth. Speaking of talking too much or maybe just talking in general, I want to know more about your podcast. Yeah. yeah my podcast is definitely a side hustle. Um, it's called The Drunk Projectionist. And I started it as a way to talk to directors and actors and crew members about movies uh, so I could learn more. I did a lot of episodes at first. And then as I was writing the book, I didn't do many at all. But I've talked to uh, Charles Burnett, who did Killer of Sheep, uh, Kelly Reichert, Barbara Koppel, uh, Frederick Wiseman. And I think most recently, one of my most recent episodes was about um, a documentary about the actor uh, Danny Trejo called Inmate Number One. Trejo's fantastic. I love that guy. Oh, my God. Yes, me too. How's the reception for the book been? Uh, It's been going really well. Lots of folks here in Minnesota have uh, taken notice. And so just getting the word out more. By the way, we've got, um, there's an excerpt uh, from the book uh, that was just published on RogerEbert.com. People want to check out uh, the wood chipper scene. They can read the excerpt at uh, RogerEbert.com. Well, good. I will definitely link to that and we'll link to your book and your podcast when this episode goes live. Todd, I got to tell you, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Yeah, great to talk to you, Mike. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.